you would turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6, if you're paying attention at all in the sermon series, you'll know that we're skipping a chapter or so. If you're not paying attention, then you have no idea what's going on. Um, I am moving ahead, and I'm going to come back next week to the original uh, passage in 4 and 5. Uh, but I'm moving ahead this time because it's a special recognition Sunday, which I'll explain at the end of the service. Uh, but in the meantime, I wanted to pick something that, that based, was based upon this theme of what we're going to do today. So um, we're moving ahead, and I'll, I'll catch you up to speed, and then we'll backtrack, and then we'll catch you up again. So we'll go from there. But uh, do me a favor, uh, Hebrews chapter 6, verses 9 through 12. Hear the word of the Lord. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name and serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Let's pray together. Our Father, we ask for your help as we hear your word, as we receive the promises of God, as we hear the exhortation to continue to, to watch and to pray and to cling to Christ by faith, and as we hear the comfort and, and encouragement of the writer of Hebrews uh, to the church at that time, we pray, Father, that we would receive that same exhortation, that same encouragement as we seek to cling to the promises of God by faith. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. The origin story, if you will, of how the state of Missouri received its nickname is unknown. We don't know how it got the nickname the Show Me State, although we know one of the first instances in which it was used. It was used by a congressman named Willard Duncan Vandiver, who looked almost as a spitting image of Mark Twain, both from the state of Missouri, and he talked a lot like him as well. Well, the story goes that one day he was in Philadelphia attending a, a dinner club called the Five O'Clock Club, very prestigious club in Philadelphia. And he heard someone speaking that day that he questioned the accuracy of some of the comments that he made, and he said this, I come from a state that raises corn and cotton and cockleburs and Democrats, and frothy eloquence neither convinces nor satisfies me. I am from Missouri. You've got to show me. I don't know about you, but I'm a natural book learner. I'm not sure how many people are. Most people like to seem like they like to learn from seeing and doing. I really like the book. Give me the book. Strangely enough, I even played basketball for a number of years and had no idea how to play basketball merely by watching someone play. But then I bought a book and I learned how to play basketball. Is that not strange? Very strange. But there's some things in life that need to be seen and not just read. When I went to seminary, I was not required to have any sort of internship or apprenticeship or anything of that nature. I learned a, a bunch and bunch of knowledge, but then I had no idea how to do 
ministry. I can tell you a bunch of horror stories about my first sermon in which I forgot all my main points and just stared like a deer in the headlights out at the congregation until finally another pastor relieved me of my duties for the day. Or how I went on my first hospital visit and uh, tended to faint at the sight of blood. Or preached my first funeral sermon and I couldn't stop crying. Uh, it would have been nice to have someone to show me how to do some of these things instead of just throwing me to the wolves. I, I mean sheep that bite. Thankfully, most seminaries today do require an internship and apprenticeship of some sort so that you can learn, and you can learn from someone. They usually pair you up with someone much older. Thankfully, uh, years later, I decided to become an associate pastor underneath another man who had been in the ministry for 40 years. And so I finally got that training by observation uh, as well as by theological examination. But it's not by accident that Jesus spent so many years in private with his disciples, in addition to showing them how he does ministry. The first 12 chapters of the Gospel of John is showing his public ministry. But then you'll notice you know, there's a transition in chapter 13 to the end of John's Gospel where it shows him mainly spending just time with his disciples so that he can spend that quality time with them so they can see who he is and what he is there for and, and what he lives for. And, and that's needed. We need to have that type of exposure, that type of observation in order to grow in our faith. And we'll, we'll see that uh, on the day of Pentecost, he doesn't just throw them to the wolves and let them figure it out merely by remembering what he said, but he gave them many opportunities to do it along with him. And so that's what we're seeing throughout the, the Gospels, throughout the epistles. Uh, but out of all the apostles, the Apostle Paul is the only one who didn't spend time with Jesus in that way. Remember, he, he comes later on. And uh, Ananias, uh, the Spirit sends him to Ananias. Ananias explains to him a little bit more of the way of Christ, but for the most part, he had to learn a lot of it on his own. Uh, thankfully, he was paired up with Barnabas first and then with Silas. And in both cases, he's sort of the leader in the relationship, but yet he's still benefiting from their knowledge and their experience as well. But, but Paul would be the first one to say that there ought to be an example for you to follow. In fact, he's constantly telling the church, to follow the perfect example of Christ in his ministry. Um, in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, he says to the church, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Since most of the uh, hearers of the gospel that he preached did not have the opportunity to walk with Jesus, he then began to point to himself, saying, well, since you haven't seen Christ, he says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. He said it on a number of occasions. Imitate me. Look at me. Use me as an example. In fact, um, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6, he gives thanks to God on behalf of the believers in Thessalonica that they became imitators both of the Lord Jesus and of them, of Paul and Silas and Timothy. They were following their example, imitating them in the same way. And that's what the author of Hebrews is pointing out for us in our text this morning, that, that they're going to learn through imitation. In verse 12, if you look there in the text, you'll see, he says, to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. So one of the people that he points them to immediately in the next passage is Abraham, saying, imitate the faith of Abraham, who 
through perseverance finally receive the promise of God. And then, as you know, chapter 11 is that hall of fame of faith. Uh, he's pointing to all these saints of old. He's saying, imitate them, follow them. But then if you continue to uh, uh, read along in the, the epistle to the Hebrews, once you get to chapter 13, he also says, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. He says, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith too. So you'll see there's a, a, a common theme throughout the New Testament of this idea of learning by imitation. And particularly, it's a prominent theme in the book of Hebrews. Now, I'll have you notice this morning uh, that this exhortation toward imitation has a context. And the context is, again, he's been giving these warnings, these warning passages. And I'm, uh, it'll actually give you a reprieve from the, the one that we we're supposed to get to next. Uh, but basically, he's giving these very difficult passages warning those who are tempted to fall away from Christ by going back toward Judaism. And chapter 6 is one of the worst passages, one of the scariest passages in Scripture about those who seem so close to the kingdom of God and yet somehow still missed it and were not saved. Uh, well, in that context, he after he's given him this very stern, this very serious, grave warning, he then says, but I have better comfort concerning you, my brothers. Uh, I have something that, that, that tells me that that's not the case for you all. And he does this by confirming some outward evidence of their faith that he has seen himself. Now, uh, I think many of you know that uh, we're saved by grace through faith alone in, in the name of Christ alone. But our assurance of faith is not something that necessarily all believers always have. It can be shaken in a lot of different ways, uh, mainly through sin, through doubt, and, and through uh, just the trials of life. But there, there are always two types of evidences that we look to when we're looking for assurance of salvation. First of all, there's that inward evidence that the Spirit gives us. Uh, Paul speaks of that in Romans 8, verse 16, when he says, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So there's this inner peace that comes from God that helps us to know that we are saved, that we have assurance of salvation. But in addition to that, uh, both the Apostle Paul and the writer of Hebrews also speak of an outward evidence as well, one that you can look to and one that others can look to and say, I see God at work in them because of these things. And it's this outward evidence that the writer of Hebrews has seen in the church where these Hebrews are gathered together, most likely outside of Rome somewhere. And he's, he's, he's trying to comfort them after giving them this very stern message that he has seen things that accompany salvation in them. So he's wanting to encourage them with that in mind. And then finally, uh, same way, he's saying, and imitate those who do show this type of evidence. So again, he's pointing us eventually to chapter 13 with the leaders in the church, because he's basically saying to those who are fearful, those who are wavering, he's saying, keep your eyes on the leaders of the church. They're not going to stumble. They're going to, they're going to lead you in the right way. Keep imitating their faith, and you will inherit the promises of God. You will reach the promised land. That's sort of where he's going with this. But what are those signs of faith? The three of them I want to point out to you this morning that the author of Hebrews seems to emphasize in this passage and those three signs of a genuine faith are these. First, he has seen their hard work. Second, he has seen their earnest love. 
And third, he has seen their steadfast patience. Let's take a look at the first one, that hard work. In verse 10, the author says, For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work. I was reading one of the commentaries on this passage earlier this week, and, and the way uh, one gentleman explained this was just wonderful. Uh, he was reminding uh, the reader of the things that God overlooks and the things that God doesn't overlook. And the, the beauty of the gospel is that when someone trusts in Jesus Christ, that God overlooks our sin. He doesn't bring them to remembrance anymore. He blots them out, separates them from us as far as the east is from the west. He overlooks our sin. But for that same person who is trusted in Christ, he never overlooks your work. The things that you've done in his name out of love for Christ, he never forgets those things. He forgets all your sin, but never forgets your work. And notice the type of work that the author is referring to here. He, he, he refers to the work of the ministry, uh, particularly ministry to the saints. In the Greek text, it's the word that we get the English word deacon from, diakoneo. <laughs> Sounds great, doesn't it? Uh, he's saying that because they have deaconed, if you will, the rest of the saints in the church, he's seen evidence of the Spirit at work in them through their diaconal type of work. Now, he's not referring to the office of deacon here but rather, rather to, to the fact that every saint in the church is called to some type of diaconal work. And it's interesting, uh, the, the word literally means, when you translate it uh, into the English, uh, this type of ministry is kicking up the dust. So this is the word imagery that's associated with it. It's the idea that it's, it's a hard work in which dust is kicked up because of the energy that you put into it. Uh, the, 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 the word was originally used by Jesus in reference to his own work as opposed to the type of work that the disciples wanted to be known for when they inherited their thrones beside Jesus as being one of the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. If you remember, they're always fighting over who's going to be the greatest, and they were thinking about being a lord over everyone. And he's comparing his type of work to theirs, saying in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve, same word, but to deacon, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Of course, we see that later on in John 13, showing them, like a Missouri person would, he's showing them this type of hard work through his washing of their feet. And then certainly the following day by his dying on the cross for their sake. Well, after, after the coming, coming of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, Pentecost, we see these same disciples, these same apostles, beginning to follow in his footsteps, doing the exact type of works. But then it gets to the point where the work becomes overwhelming because there's so many needs in the early church. And that's what causes the office of the deacon to be created was because the apostles couldn't keep up with all of the things that had to be done. And so then we see officially a man called to be a deacon uh, to, to basically, basically kick, kick up some dust, dust on behalf of the church. And, and, and we know that at least in Acts chapter 6, one of the duties that they did at that time uh, was to wait on tables, either literally in the sense of uh, serving food to widows at the table or sitting at the table to count the money that was given to them in order to provide for the needs of the widows at that time. Of course, this type of ministry was not limited in any way to the office of the deacon, nor is it limited in any way to that particular work. So it's not that a deacon only serves a table 
or someone who's going to do any type of ministry is only going to be doing administrative work. The Apostle Peter, again, uses the same kind of term in reference to Dorcas. If you remember, he raised her from the dead, this, this woman. And it, it basically, in speaking of her, commending her, he said of her that uh, she was full of good works and acts of charity on behalf of the saints. She's constantly ministering to the rest of the saints. She's well known for her diaconal type of work. In fact, later on in Paul's epistles, we see a list of widows that are being uh, put throughout the church. And the, the widows that are to be put on this list were known for these things, for showing hospitality, washing the feet of the saints, caring for the afflicted, and he says, and devoting themselves to every good work. So again, it's someone who's kicking up the dust for the sake of God's church. It's no different today. Anyone who's a true believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, one of the evidences of that grace of God in their heart, it causes them to love the church to the point where they want to work. They want to serve, to serve in the same manner that Christ served. They would not come to be served, but to serve and to give themselves up for the sake of Christ's church. Now, that could be a number of things. Literally, it could be picking up chairs after the service. Could be a possibility. Uh, setting up tables, things of that nature, waiting on tables. Certainly, it also could mean uh, visiting the sick, helping a brother or sister in need, counting money, cooking a meal, clipping hedges, teaching Sunday school. I mean, obviously, making coffee on Sundays, getting, greeting people at the door, helping in the nursery. A whole host of other things. It really is endless. All types of good works. There's so many ways that the church is in need. And the person who's indwelled by the Spirit and who has the Spirit of God at work in them causes them to want to work in this way. To want to kick up some dust for the sake of His church. Not just the minimal amount, not just so that we could say we did something, but the, the assured believer is one who just loves Christ and His church. And so he wants to serve in this way. And so it's a obvious sign for anyone who says, show me your faith. It's an obvious sign that someone can see that it is uh, the work of God in their midst. Of course, the opposite of that he mentions toward the end of this passage is the word sluggishness, uh, sort of equated with laziness, someone who, who just doesn't want to work, has no desire to work in Christ's church. It's, it's interesting, when you look at the parables of the kingdom that Jesus shares, this is a recurring theme. Uh, in, in Matthew chapter 20, in the parable of the vineyard, if you remember, uh, the master goes out to town and looks for men who are standing idly by. Why? So he can put them to work. And he keeps coming every three hours. There's a different point of the message at the end, but his assumption each time is he keeps asking, why are you standing here idly? I'm going to put you to work. And that's his job. That's, that's what he wants to do. So he's saying, in the kingdom of God, those who are part of his kingdom are workers. He's called us to work. Well, the same way, we see it more clearly in Matthew chapter 25 in the parable of the talents, where, as again, the master goes away, he gives each servant a number of talents to do work. And we see that those who do the work with what God has given them, he commends them, he praises them for the labor. Uh, but then there's one man, if you remember, who hides his talent in the sand. Listen to what Jesus says to him. You wicked and slothful servant. 
take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Why? Because those who have the Spirit of God, they're motivated to work. They went to work for the sake of church. And again, this is the comfort that the writer of Hebrews has for those in that church that they are saved. He's seen evidence of their salvation through their hard work. And again, the Apostle Paul says, follow me, imitate me, uh, even in the context of work, because he says, uh, he says on one occasion, he says, I worked harder than all of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was within me. Again, I, I have to reiterate, because we always get these things confused. You're not saved by works. You hear me? You will never be saved by your works. Your works will never be good enough for God. They will always be seen as evil and dirty rags in God's sight. You're not saved by your works. Our works really just show the reality that God has done a work in us. That's it. If we don't work for God's kingdom, though, then what does that imply? That maybe the grace of God is not at work in me because I have no desire to do work. But again, the author of Hebrews is, is encouraging. I've seen it. I've seen it in you. Because I've seen it, you should be assured of your salvation. You're, you're working hard for the Lord. He will not be so unjust as to overlook that, he says. But then secondly, he also talks about their earnest love. And again, in verse 10, he says, uh, he reminds them of the love that they had shown for God's name in serving the saints, both in the past as well as in the present. And notice that, that that love always has two objects. First of all is the name of God, and then second is the need of the saints. So this, this love has, uh, it's two-dimensional. It has a, a vertical as well as a horizontal component to it. When someone has the Spirit of God within them, they love God, and they love His name. They want to see His name honored. They want to see His name glorified. They're praying every day, hallowed be thy name. I want to see your name loved and cherished by people. But at the same time, that love is demonstrated often by loving the brothers and sisters of Christ through ministering to your fellow saints. And again, this is the way it's always put together. These two things are always go hand in hand in Scripture. 1 John chapter 4, verse 20 reads this way. He who does not love his brother whom he has not seen, oh, whom he has seen, God, I, I'm just ruining this one today. I'm going to read it directly. He who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. I've memorized that verse ten times at least, and I somehow have not memorized it, so there it is. Uh, of course, we, we, we normally think of showing our love, demonstrating our love for God through song, through praise, through reading our Bible, and those are all great ways of doing that. Great ways. Not to diminish what I do up here or what anybody does up here. These are great ways to show our love for God. But if that's all we got, we don't love the brothers. It's worthless. I've, I've been to, and I don't, I don't want to disparage. Anybody who comes from a charismatic church, I'm not disparaging all charismatic churches. I went to one, just one, where everyone was very excited to sing. Then afterwards, they're like running over you to get out of the parking lot. 
No concept of love for the brothers. All love for God. If you love God, it's demonstrated also through love for the brothers. Presbyterians don't know how to love either, so just keep that in mind. We're just as bad. Baptists do it much better. They give you food. That's this basically what it comes down to. Um, but the truth of the matter is this. If we love the Lord, we love his people. If we love Christ as the head, we have to love Christ and his body. If we love the vine, we have to love the branches. If we love the bridegroom, we have to love the bride, right? They always go hand in hand. Although the writer doesn't explicitly tell us how they put this love into practice in every possible way. Later on in chapter 13, he says one way that they did that was they had compassion on those who were in prison for the sake of the gospel. So they showed it by ministering to those who were in jail for their faith in Christ and even suffered alongside of them. They were showing their love for God through their love for the brothers. Similarly, the Apostle Paul tells the believers in Rome, he says, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. So in other words, he's saying, for the sake of the saints, I'm willing to endure any type of affliction because I love Christ's church. Same way Paul tells Timothy that he endured everything, every persecution, affliction, all of this, he says, for the sake of God's elect, for the church. Other occasions, he says he does all these things for the sake of Christ. Do you think those are at odds with each other? No. They're always for both. He does it for the sake of God's name and then for the need of the saints. He puts those two things together. In fact, almost every epistle of Paul's beginning his uh, letter to the different people groups, different churches, by saying, Paul, what? A servant of God, a deacon of God, one who kicks up dust for God. And then also, he says, for the sake of the faith of God's elect. So it's always those two things that go hand in hand. That's exactly why Jesus, what Jesus told the disciples to wash one another's feet. He says, by doing this, you show love for one another and that the unbelievers around the world will know that you are my disciples by how you love one another. Not just how well you sing. Not just how great you talk. But how well you love. So it's not merely enough to do the work of the ministry. It's not merely enough to love the Lord. It has to be demonstrated also through a love for God's people. That's what Paul's saying in 1 Corinthians 13 when he gives that long chapter on love, right? He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, so I have awesome gifts, but I don't have love. I'm a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. If I have great faith and knowledge, but have not love, I am nothing. He adds, even if I give away all I have, everything I have, for the sake of the gospel, and I even deliver up my body to be burned, I'm willing to be a martyr for the sake of Christ, he says, and yet I don't love. He says, I gain nothing. Because those two things always go hand in hand. Jesus says, as you did it to one of the least of my brothers, you've done it unto me. Right? Anyone who seeks to serve God and serve in the church but doesn't have love, it's like, a, you know, the, the, what is it, the decorative artificial fruit. You know, as a, as a kid, you're like, and then you try to bite it, and you're like, what? It doesn't smell like fruit. It doesn't taste like fruit. It looks like it, but it's not the same thing. It's fake. 
Anyone who doesn't love, it's not real fruit. It's not real grace that's being demonstrated. On the other hand, for those who do love the saints, their affections are obvious. You could say that they love God's people. You could say that they love the saints. Second Corinthians chapter 8, Paul exhorts the believers. He says, prove your love is genuine by your earnestness for others in the church. And then he gives a couple examples. He's, he, he mentions Titus as an example of this earnest love. He says, thanks be to God who put it into the heart of Titus, that same earnest care and love that I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he's going to you of his own accord in order to minister to you. Now what that means is probably twofold. In other words, he wasn't asked to go, and no one paid him to go. He went because he loved them. He made a trip across the Mediterranean to minister to them because he loved them. The same way, Paul commends a couple of men, Epaphras. He, he mentions Epaphras to the Colossians. He commends them for his hard work on their behalf and his earnest prayers for them regularly, praying for their sanctification, praying for their fellowship in the Lord. Similarly, he prays, he, uh, Paul mentions uh, uh, Epaphroditus to the Philippians for his faithful ministry to the church and the fact that he longed for them in love. He's expressing that in writing, how he longed for them. Clearly, there's something there more than just their work. It's a love for the saints that they're demonstrating as well. Uh, again, uh, that's what 1 John, if, you're, if you want to know what the whole epistle of 1 John is about, it, it's to help the believers to have some assurance of salvation. And he's constantly pointing about a, a number of different ways that they could be assured of their salvation. One of the ways he talks about is through love for the brothers. He says, we know, 1 John 3, 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life. Why? Because we love the brothers. If someone is working hard for the sake of the kingdom and he loves the brothers, he ought to be greatly assured of his salvation. And that's what he's saying. So he's, again, comforting them because he's like, I've seen your hard work and I've seen your earnest love. And then third, he points out as well that he's also seen something of their steadfast patience. Now, what the author here means is a perseverance in the faith, especially in times of trial or even in times of persecution. Uh, again, he uses Abraham as an example of this patient, steadfast patience when he had not yet received the promise of God living in tents, waiting for the promise of God to be fulfilled. But then he goes on to other examples as well. But uh, one of the clearest examples, of uh, he actually shows that he's seen it in the church. You actually have to turn over uh, four chapters, Hebrews chapter 10. If you hold your place there, you want to look there. Hebrews 10, verses 32 through 34. Here's what he says to them. He says, but recall, the former days... When after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated, for you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So there's some evidence of their salvation based upon their strong faith and patience in the midst of trials. You know, we, we normally uh, uh, 
can get assurance on a daily basis through our, our hard work, through our love for God and for others. But there's special times as well, uh, appointed times, if you will, in which God appoints us to suffer, appoints us to undergo trials. And he's like, especially during those times, that's when you see some evidence of God at work, strengthening that faith, helping you during those times. Um, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, if you remember all those blessed blessed bees, right, uh, the Beatitudes, uh, we, we forget the last section. In fact, I don't think we want to focus on the last section. He talks about, you know, blessed are the peacekeepers and, you know, blessed are those guys. But the, he, he's summing all this up at the end by saying, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And blessed are you when others revile you. Do you feel blessed when people revile you? Blessed are you when people persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So again, he's saying, I've seen evidence of this in your midst. I've seen your patience in affliction. I've seen you undergo these great trials, and yet you have not walked away from Christ. So again, there's some in the church who are tempted to walk away from Christ. Like, I've seen you in great trial to continue to love God and continue to trust Him. So I exhort you to continue to do that all the more. Again, the Lord Jesus in the book of Revelation, if you remember the first few chapters, He's writing letters to these different churches, right? Uh, giving a message to each of these churches. And what you'll see is a recurring theme over and over again in that text where He's saying that the one who overcomes in all these trials, he is the one who will enter into the promised land. He is the one who will inherit the kingdom of God. He, he says, to him who conquers, he will have the right to eat from the tree of life. To him who conquers or overcomes, I will be his God. He will be my son. To the one who conquers, he will not be hurt by the second death, but I will give him authority over all the nations. To him who conquers, I will make a pillar in the house of my God. Every one of these letters to these churches, he's constantly saying, the one who overcomes, the one who perseveres, the one who is patient in the midst of these trials, he will receive the promises. Not the one who starts out well, but the one who has continued to persevere in patience. In contrast to those, he speaks of those outside of the kingdom of God, and he mentions some such as these. He says, the cowardly and the faithless. Again, I think I may have shared with you before, I remember reading this when I was a young kid, and I realized I was a coward. And I thought, uh-oh, I'm not going to get into the kingdom of God. I'm naturally fearful. And uh, what, what I realized when I came to Christ by faith is that I learned to fear God more than all these other things. The person who does not inherit the kingdom of God, the coward, is the one who fears the reproach of the world more than he fears Christ. He fears the insults of the world more than he fears Christ. He fears the persecution, being an outcast from the rest of the world, being considered as something odd and different. The persons that walk away from Christ because they want to stay with the world, he's saying those are the cowards. Those are the faithless. Because they're in the midst of trial. They're in the midst of persecution. Again, a trial and persecution can be simply just being insulted for being a Christian. That's it. 
Thankfully, we haven't experienced great persecution here, but he's basically saying, I've seen you experience this. They've lost property. They lost their jobs. They clearly were insulted and persecuted in so many ways, and yet they continued to be patient, holding on to the promises of God. He had seen their work. He had seen their love, and he had seen their steadfast patience under trial. So he's commending them for those three things. But, but again, I have to always couch this in such a way that you understand what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that they worked enough or that they loved enough or they suffered enough to get into the kingdom of heaven. That's not what I'm saying. Anyone who thinks that is still trying to base salvation upon a works-based philosophy. That's not what I'm saying. Rather, what I'm saying is Christ's work has been finished in them. Christ's love is perfected and growing in them. And somehow they're now sharing in the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. And it's through that work, through that love, through that suffering that they share with Christ that they have assurance of salvation. Not because they've done enough, but because Christ has done it for them. And now it's evidence that they are on the right path to heaven. It, it, again, it's not... It's not our works, our love, and our sufferings that earn us a ticket into heaven. Literally, if you use that analogy, our works, our suffering, and our love are the ticket. They are the evidence that the price has already been paid. If you have a ticket in your hand, that means someone's already paid it. Christ has paid the price for my salvation, and now here's the evidence of it. Here's the ticket that I show I have a right to get on this train. I have a right to go to this destination. The evidence is that God's work is now being demonstrated in me. God's love is being demonstrated in me. God's suffering is now demonstrated in me. And so whoever has that ticket, Peter says, will continue to add to their faith all sorts of virtue and good works and love for the brothers and love for God and steadfastness under trial. They'll continue to add to these things because he says, for if these qualities are ours, and they're increasing, they will keep us from being ineffective and unfruitful in our knowledge of the Lord Jesus. And so, again, he says, imitate those who are on this train. Imitate those who dis demonstrate these qualities and continue to add them to yourself as well. He says, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will not fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an inheritance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Because we see evidence of Christ at work in us through these things. Now, if we don't see evidence of these things, I'm not saying you just start working harder. Start loving more and, and go look for a way to suffer. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm, what I'm saying is call out to God. Cry out to him. Say, I don't see evidence of this. I, I, I don't feel right with you. Confess whatever sin that's hindering you in your walk with God. Cry out to Christ. Salvation, comfort, encouragement. And to, to, to have the Spirit move in you, then you would begin to see this type of evidence. Again, if you haven't seen it, I certainly hope you've seen some of it in us. 
continue to spend time with God's people. I just had a class with the kids in the communicants class and asked them, well, why do we gather together as a church? And I said, so you can spend time with some horrible sinners and, and learn how to grow up in your faith into maturity. But it has to be horrible sinners who also are saints and who are beginning to show some evidence of that. Again, I, I say, you know, if you're going to go to a church where everybody's great and everybody's loving and everybody's awesome, you will never learn how to love. Because you won't have to, because they're so easy to love. No, God purposely brings us into your life so that you learn how to love. You learn how to be patient. You learn how to forgive. You learn kindness. You learn longing for a better fellowship. But nevertheless, you're also seeing some evidence of it in us, too, that we're longing for the same thing. That we're learning how to forgive. We're learning how to be kind and to grow in the ways of Christ. And I can say, in, in many, many ways, I have seen that evidence in you. But let us be comforted by that, but also be diligent to continue to add to that daily so that none of us will fall by doubt and unbelief. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for the encouragement of the scripture. We thank you that none of us have to be perfect to get into heaven, but we have to trust in the one who is perfect. None of us have to have our act together, but we, we have to look to the one who has completed the act. And yet, Lord, the, the essence of the gospel, the essence of our, our, our salvation is not just merely a a confession or a, a, and one act that we have performed, but rather it's, it's a continual relationship with Christ, clinging to him by faith, and then seeing the evidence of that relationship in our lives in these ways. Lord, we pray that you would show more evidence of that in each one of us, that we might be confident now and on the day of judgment to know that we have an advocate on high who speaks on our behalf, who lays his hand on us as well as upon you, O Lord, and says he is mine. He's forgiven. He's holy. Father, we pray that you would grant that assurance and that comfort each one of us.